pray for tonight's message, and then we'll, we will get into it. Dear Heavenly Father, this is your house. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit come now and just touch every single person in this room. Clear the minds and the hearts of everyone. Allow us just to jump into your word to learn it. It's a super difficult passage tonight, God. Allow me to communicate truth. Allow me to communicate what the text actually says in a clear way. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In Southern California, almost to the Nevada border, there is a valley. And this valley is the driest and hottest place in the North Americas. Does anyone know what valley this is? No. The Valley of Death? I mean, that's kind of right. Death Valley, yes. The Valley of Death. I mean, let's get poetic. Yes, the Valley of Death. So Death Valley is the hottest and driest place in North America. It's an interesting place. Scientists from all over the world come to study different things and all different types of scientists. Geologists, people who study plants, people who study climate, every type of pretty much science you could think of come there to study how unique this national park is. But one of the most unique things in this park and one of the most mysterious things in this park is a thing called a sailing rock. Now I have a picture of it. Let's throw it up on the screen. Boom, that's quick. There it is. See the sailing rock. Now, if you want to go check one of these sailing rocks out, you'd have to first fly to LA, then drive all the way over almost to Nevada. You would park at uh, the visitor center, which is called the Furnace Creek Visitor Center. That's just the coolest visitor center name. Let's just all get that straight. Furnace Creek Visitor Center. So you'd park there. You'd fill up your rental car or if you had a friend, you'd fill up your car. Then you would uh, get a whole bunch of water because it is Death Valley. It's dry. It's hot, right? So you'd fill up your water jugs and then you would drive about 50 miles north on a paved road, which would take you about two hours. You'd pass deserts, mountains, forests, uh, the whole nine. It's an amazing national park. Then you would hit a dirt road and you'd get on this dirt road for another 30 miles and it'd take you another two hours just to get to this location, which is called Race Track Playa. Okay? Now it's called Race Track Playa. Now, not the playa like. The urban dictionary word for player, short for player, and if you don't get that, then maybe you should Google it. Well, if you, if you don't get that, Google you probably don't even use anyways, but not that type of player, okay? Player actually means, it's a science word, it, it is a dried out lake bed. So this is a player right here. Everyone clear on that? Not player, but player. Okay. So this is where we're talking about, and they call it the racetrack, is because there's something crazy that happens here. Has anyone ever heard of a sailing stone before? Just, I just want to see. Okay, a couple people. Interesting. This, this blow your mind. All right, so do you see the outline there, that little X? That was made by those rocks. You see, for over the last hundred years, people have been studying these sailing rocks, trying to figure out how they move. Ain't no one knows. We can't figure out, well, they can't figure out or they couldn't figure out how these rocks are shifting around on the ground. Now, there's been some theories. I wrote these down. So the first theory was back about 100 years ago, they thought it was magnetism. They figured out that the earth had a magnetic field and they thought maybe some of these rocks have a magnet, like metal in it that's magnetized and the magnetic field is pushing them around and then they came up, that ain't, that ain't happening. Some people thought it's aliens and still think it's aliens and 
that ain't happening. And then uh, other people thought it was like a mysterious energy field. Um, it's kind of like the Bermuda Triangle. There's something weird going on here. But they came to find out that that's not it. Some people thought it was just weirdos driving all the way out there, you know, moving the rocks like the crop fields, circle things. That ain't it because there ain't no footprints by them. Up until the 1970s, people were coming up with all these crazy ideas. And then I'm going to read a passage from National Geographic to you guys. In the following decades, theories drifted toward ice, which can occasionally form on the playa during the winter. During the early 1970s, a pair of geologists, Robert Sharp of Caltech and Dwight Carey of UCLA, two distinguished universities, attempted to settle once and for all whether ice or wind was responsible. The team visited the racetrack twice a year and meticulously tracked the movements of 30 stones, giving them names. One, Karen. I don't know why they called her Karen. The largest boulder. I don't know. Eh, probably should have gave that a man name. Just saying. Okay. Karen, the largest boulder, was 700 pounds. So let's put this into perspective. Some of these rocks are the size of a mouse, like a, a, a mouse, but some of them are the size of a boulder, 700 pounds, and they're moving all around. They planted wooden stakes around the stones, deducing that if, it, it, that if ice sheets were responsible, the ice would be frozen to the stakes, thereby immobilizing the stones. So they thought that this plane would flood during the wintertime, and they thought that ice would come up, and it would like lock all the rocks in. And then the ice would shift the whole thing, Right? And they said, well, if we plant stakes down around the rocks, then they ain't going to move. Because even if the ice shifts, the stakes, the rocks are stuck down. Pretty good idea, right? But some of the stones still moved. In fact, most of the stones still moved, especially big old Karen. And despite frequent visits, the pair never actually saw one move. They couldn't figure out. And over the next 30 years, people continued to visit this site and try to figure out how they moved all the way up until 2011. When my man, who was a plant scientist, shows up, and his name is Ralph, Ralph excuse me, Forenza. And he figured out how they moved. And it took 30 years for them to figure out how they moved. Or 130 years, excuse me, for them to figure out how these rocks actually moved. Now I want to talk to you today about rocks that do move. You see, I want to talk to you today about rocks that are actually alive. Because a lot of people thought that something alive was moving them. If it was an animal, if it was people. But what Fred, uh, Ralph figured out was that the rocks actually aren't alive. There's nothing alive actually moving the rocks. But today, I want to focus on two rocks that are alive and that are moving and that are still moving to, around the world today. And the first rock is Jesus, and the second rock is Peter. And I'm going to come back to talking about this example at the end. So I, don't worry, I'm going to tell you how the rocks actually move around. Settle down, just play with it a little bit. Don't Google it, just wait. Peter and Jesus. We find a great story of this idea of the rock in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. And I want to read through this text today, and then we're going to come back and go through it verse by verse. We good? All right. Here we go, 16, verse 13. <clears throat> when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? 
excuse me, flipped too early. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others say Jeremiah or the other prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you lose on earth will be lost in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples, please, he orders his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. We bring this passage up today because the main focus is this guy named Simon, son of John or Jonah in some of your translations. His name gets changed to Peter and for a good reason. And you know, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about name changes in the Bible. And we've been bringing them up because we wanted to tell you guys and just reinforce the idea that name change can and is usually a good thing, especially when we see it in the Bible. Because we used to, some of you might not know, we used to be called Hope Chapel County Hawaii Bay, and now we are called Anchor Church. And this will be our last week, I believe, that we're talking about this idea of name change. Before we get into expositing the text, I want to just talk about the backstory real quick because it's super important. We're going to pull two things out. And the whole story really does start with Jesus. When we look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're actually stories about Jesus' life and what he was doing in his ministry and his death and his resurrection. That is what the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are about. At the very beginning of the Gospels, especially Matthew, and we're going to stay in this book of Matthew, uh, Jesus does something and he starts his ministry. And he goes to this guy named John the Baptist and he gets baptized. Now this was seen by Andrew Simon, Peter's brother, Okay. So he gets baptized, and after he gets baptized, he goes into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights and fasts and comes out. He's tempted by the devil. He overcomes the devil. And then after that, he goes to everyone. He says, behold, the kingdom of God is here. He makes a huge statement. The kingdom of God is here. And then he says, all right, I need some disciples. I'm a rabbi. I'm a teacher. I need some students. And so he sees these two boys, Andrew and Peter. Simon at the time. I'm just going to call him Peter so we don't get all confused. He sees Andrew and Peter, and he goes up to him and he asks him if, he wants, if they want to be his disciples. And he said, yeah, of course. So they become his disciples. It makes sense. It's a huge honor to be a disciple of a rabbi during this time period, especially for two young Jewish boys. And then after that, Jesus gets some more disciples. Jesus then starts performing miracles and starts teaching to mass crowds. Uh, he starts calming storms. He exercises demons. Uh, then he calls the rest of the 12 disciples who we're all familiar with. Then starts teaching in synagogues and using these things that are weird called parables to teach. He starts to get huge followings because of these things that he's doing. He goes on to feed the 5,000, then he walks on water and crosses the Lake of Galilee, and then he meets another big crowd that starts seeing him perform miracles, and he feeds four more thousand. And this brings me to my first point of why I want to just talk about the backstory of who Jesus is and what he was doing. The first point is, is there's a large crowds following this guy, trying to figure out who he is, which brings some uh, context to the, the passage. The second point I want to bring up is that this is about a year to about a year and a half of ministry for Jesus. I don't know exactly the time because the Bible, uh, this part of the Bible is not laid out chronologically. 
we don't know exactly how long Jesus was with the disciples at this point, but we can take an educated guess and assume that it was at least a year of all this ministry from how far he was walking around to about a year and a half of his ministry. Y'all following with me? Is it getting boring? Seven o'clock night, Friday, a little sleepy. All right, follow me. It's going to get good. My point with that is a year and a half with someone walking with them every single day, sleeping with them every single night, spending every single moment with the guy, you get to know the person. After being married to my wife for a year, you get to know that individual. And, you know, I just spent a, a week in Japan with some kids. I got to know all of them way more. You know, and here's just a little plug. I'm going to step out of the text. When we go to camps with kids, because I'm the youth and young adult pastor here, when we go to camps with kids, it's amazing to see what happens, how relationships get built over just a week with the leader and the kid. It's amazing, just one week hanging out with them. And you know, Barna, and I'm going to get on a soapbox real quick. You know, Barna is this organization that says two-thirds, they surveyed a whole bunch of people in the Christian church around America. Two-thirds of kids come to know the Lord when they're between junior high and high school, two-thirds. And the vast majority of them come to know the Lord at camp. And I have to just ask all the parents right now, or on the uncles and aunties, or anyone who knows kids, why won't the biggest push of the year be to get your kids to these camps? I'm not trying to sell my camp. My camp is already, it's going to get sold out. It gets sold out every year. But you have to hear me on this. You should be fighting to get your kids into these camps because relationships are built that change their life. I'm on a soapbox right now. I'm all off subject. But relationships are important. And my point is this, is Peter has a strong understanding of who Jesus is. He was with them for over a year and a half. So we got two things here. Huge crowds following Jesus and, J and Peter and the disciples really do know who Jesus is. And then we're going to jump into the text. Follow me? Ooh, we got a good time. Good time. All right, it starts 13. And I'm just going to try to break down some of these things so we can better understand the text. When I first read this, I read through it. I was like, I kind of got this. This is pretty good. I've read this passage before. So I went to a commentary set, and the commentary said, this is the most, uh, this is the most difficult, difficult passage to understand in all of Scripture. And I looked at it like, well, it doesn't seem so difficult. And then I started studying. I was like, oh, boy. I looked at another commentary and said, it's the most, it's the most debated passage in all of scripture. I was like, oh boy. But I want you to know some of the information that I'm giving you today is basically from commentaries. And if you need this information or want to follow up with me on some of this information, I'd be happy to supply you with those commentaries and the information. I'm just not going to cite them all. Okay, cool. All right, sweet. All right. Well, everyone's kind of like, what is he saying? Just follow. Yeah. All right. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, now Philippi is an area north of the Sea of Galilee. It's on the slopes of Mount Hermon. It's now where we call the Golem Heights. So if you're familiar with Israel, it's just, it's over there by Jerusalem, all right? Now he asks his disciples, and this is an interesting question. He sits down with his disciples. Now we know that all 12 disciples are there at this point, all 12. We don't know if there's other people there. Maybe not, maybe, but we know that all 12 disciples, all of his students are sitting in front of him. And he asks all of them, it says this, who do people say the son of man is? Now, this is an interesting term because the son of man jumps out at me like, what the heck? Who refers to themselves as the son of man? All right. Just so you know that Jesus refers to himself as the son of man the majority of time, the time in all of the gospels. Okay. He actually refers to himself 81 times as the son of man. 
And I looked it up. I was like, man, this is kind of difficult. What does the son of man mean? Yep. <laughs> I was like, yeah. All right. The son of man is pretty simple. When we actually look at it, Jesus is doing something unique because Jesus also claims to be the son of God. Okay. These are two different things. The son of man is a term that was used during ancient Near Eastern writings that son of man and other people in the Bible are called the son of man, like Daniel, for example, but it's referred to as a human being with authority, okay? So there's a human aspect to it. He's saying, who do people say I am? He's claiming to be human here. That's very important for us to start with. So Jesus is asking his 12 disciples who know him the best, who all these people that are following him around, who do they say I am? Y'all follow him? Okay, he says, uh, so who do you say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist. Now John the Baptist was the guy that baptized Jesus, hence John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Now Elijah comes in the, uh, excuse me, Elijah comes in the way Old Testament, way back in the day. He was a great prophet, one of the major prophets. And still others say Jeremiah, another a great prophet. Uh, it happened thousands of years before Jesus came. So these people are like confused. They're like, this guy has a lot of power and a lot of authority. He's anointed by God. We don't know, is he like reincarnated? We don't know what he actually is. We just know that this Jesus guy is special. Jesus wasn't running around at the beginning of a ministry saying, I'm the son of God, I'm Jesus, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ. He wasn't doing that. He was teaching, he was healing, he was loving, he was educating. That's what he was doing at the beginning of his ministry. So people really don't know who he is. And I have to ask this question. Who do you say the son of man is? Have you ever thought about that? Like, who do you say Jesus is? I'm gonna come back to that. Just think about that. But then he says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? So he's referring to his 12 disciples when he says the you. And Simon Peter answered. Now, Simon Peter was the guy uh, that we're, we're focusing on here. Simon, son of John, uh, or Jonah, depending on your text. Now, he's the, one that always, he's the one that jumped out of the boat, walked on water. He's the one that was like the go-getter. He's the one that wanted to always answer first. He's the talkative one. He's the outgoing one. He was the one that Jesus loved. So Simon Peter answered, so he, refer, he asked the question to all the disciples. He says, uh, so who do you say I am? Simon Peter's answer. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You see, Jesus starts with this simple question. Who do people say the son of man is? This human aspect. And he says it to the people who know him the best, his disciples. Because the rest of the world think he's some sort of reincarnated prophet. But what do his disciples say he is? They say, Jesus, Peter says this. Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. He places a divine being on him. Jesus doesn't say no. He says, blessed are you. But I want to bring this back to all of us in here. Who do you say Jesus is? Because the people that knew Jesus the most... They're the people who didn't think he was just a human like he claimed to be right here. They thought he was actually more the Christ, the Messiah. Those words are interchangeable. One's Hebrew, one's Greek. One means 
excuse me, they both mean anointed one. So he's saying, Jesus, you are the anointed one, the one that's to come, the one that's to save the world. You are the anointed one, the son of, and he adds to it, the living God, the God that's alive. This is huge. So the individuals who know him the most say, you're the son of God. And I have to ask this question straight out of C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Who do you say Jesus is? Because a lot of the time people are going to say this, Jesus was just a great teacher. Right? You've heard that before, right? No, yes, you can respond. No, yeah, all right, whatever. Jesus was just a great teacher. How about this one? Um, you know, he was just a really ethical, moral guy. C.S. Lewis argues in Mere Christianity that you cannot say Jesus was just an ethical, great teacher. He says, because Jesus never claimed to be a real, great, ethical, moral teacher. Jesus claimed to be God, and his disciples claimed that he was God. So you have to ask yourself the question, C.S. Lewis says, he says, if he's actually not God, who here has ever heard this before? It's pretty good then he must have been lying, right? Then he must have not been the son of man, the son of God. He's a liar. Therefore, if he's a liar, he ain't no good teacher. He ain't a moral person. He isn't someone that we should look up to. You see, you can't claim that Jesus is just this good guy. You could also say that C.S. Lewis says, you know what, maybe he did think he was God. Maybe he actually was like, yeah, I'm God, but he wasn't. That means he's a lunatic, all right? And then that means he wasn't a great moral teacher as well. Do y'all follow me? So then what he says is, hey, you got to pick one, liar, lunatic, or actually Lord. Who do you guys say Jesus is? Are you like Peter? Do you say, you know what? Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Or what do you say? Because Jesus is asking every single one of us that question, not just Peter. Good? Good. Let's keep going. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by the Father in heaven. I'm on the next page already. Oh boy, this is controversial. All right, so let me just try to be clear on this. If there's any other questions, you guys can just fire those emails right to Pastor Carl. All right. No, I, you know what? This, is what? this is what's great about Scripture. It's alive. It's moving. It's, it, we wrestle with it, and uh, we try to understand it. But the, the beauty of the depth of these next few verses is unbelievable, and it's just another sign to me that this, this Jesus guy is God. People don't teach like this. I've, I've had the opportunity to study at some of the best universities in the world, and people are not teaching at this high of a level. It's just unbelievable. So here we go. I'm going to try to follow it up on it. I'll follow it right here because that's a lot. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by what my Father in heaven. So what is he saying here? He's saying that you did not come to know that I was the Christ, the Son of the living God, except through what my Father has told you. Now this is um, uh, one of the evidence or one of the proofs for Reformed theology, Okay. And they say that, you know, it's the whole predestination thing. God has predestined you to heaven. And let me just say this. This isn't a platform for me to argue that point of free will or predestination, nor is it a, a good place to argue that. But I have to say this. I'm an individual of the both and. I like the both ands. And let me just say this. Peter had an option when Jesus said, hey, you guys want to be my disciples? Peter did have the option to say no. 
He could have said, nope, I can't kick because my jeans too tight and my legs sore. He said, nope, okay. He could have said that. But what did he do? He chose to follow Christ. And in following Christ, when we seek him, we get this imparted wisdom from the Father. You guys follow that? That's the truth that I get out of this passage, not free will, predestination stuff. What I get out of this passage is that, you know what? When we follow Christ, when we seek God himself, man, wisdom does come. Y'all follow that? Yeah, so it starts big right there. This separated the church, by the way, about 500 years ago, that little line right there, but whatever. All right, and then it says, and I tell you, and this is where it gets great too, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, I, I gotta just stop right here, and we're gonna sit on this passage a little bit, but here he goes, and I tell you that you are Peter. So his name is Simon, and he converts him over to Peter, and he says, Peter. Now, this Peter right here, when we look at it and study it a little more, it actually is, is a stone or a rock that is, is smaller, but that's movable. Y'all follow me? So it's a movable stone slash rock. It's not, it's not like bedrock. It's not foundational rock. It's a, it's a stone. It's something that's strong. Y'all follow me? And so he calls him that. He changes his name, his identity to that. Y'all follow him? And then he says that on this rock, I will build my church. This rock is different. This rock is the word for Pietra. It is actually not a small stone that's movable or an object that's movable. It's actually a bedrock. And what's interesting here is Jesus is saying, look, Peter, you are the stone. You're like this strong individual that that you're going to be awesome. Just trust me. I, I know you're stronger than this. But he says, and because this... Guess what? It is on this rock. What rock? Not Peter. Not Peter. Different rocks. He's saying on this rock, Peter's claim of who Jesus is. He's saying, guess what? It is on this rock we will build this church. On this rock, this rock is Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is this bedrock, this foundational rock. They're different. This sentence right here really was a huge defining point that separated the Catholic Church from the Protestant Church. They believe that the rock, the Catholic Church, excuse me, believes that the rock, both of them, is Peter, the Pope. We believe as Protestants that it's kind of a both and. God uses the stones, the rocks to spread his message, but the foundation is this. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the Son of God. That is our foundation. That's what I, our foundation. That's what separates us from Mormons. That's what separates us from Jehovah Witnesses. That's what separates us from Muslims. That's what separates us from the Jews. We believe this, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the difference. That's what makes a Christian a Christian. Your bedrock, your foundation has to be Jesus. That's it. That's all, y'all. And I, I want to just throw it back to Peter, though, here. And this is my second question to all of you. Will you be a rock? Will you be a Peter? 
And I say this because all of us at one point in time have to come to the conclusion, especially if we're a Christian, do we, when we are asked, who do we say Jesus is, are we going to say there and say this, Jesus, I believe that you are fully God, fully human. You, you're the son. Of, you, you, you're everything, Jesus. Everything to me. Are we going to be that rock? And what I mean by that is, I mean, in every part of our life, is Jesus going to be our foundation? And every part of our life, our health, our physical health. I just went to Japan and I was there for nine days. I gained 10 pounds. That's not giving Christ my life because I didn't take care of my body at all. All right, I'm still trying to lose those 10 pounds. All right, are we giving our bodies, our physical bodies, all to Christ? How about our emotional life? Are we praying on the regular? Are we trying to seek God in everything that we're doing? Are we trying to be mentally healthy and give everything to Christ? How about our finances? When we look at ourselves, are we a Peter who says, you know what, Jesus is calling us a rock because every part of us is giving all to Jesus. Y'all following me? Because sometimes, especially in the finance world, we're more like mud. We're not like rocks. You know, we like kind of give 10%, but then we give like 2% one week. And then the next week we give 8%. We ain't like solid rocks. Are we Peters? Are we rocks? Are we individuals that say, you know what? Every part of our life is going to be a rock, a stone. We are going to be strong. We are going to seek this fact that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. When we keep reading on, it says this, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I always thought that was weird, the gates of Hades. I was like, man, is that like the, the devil? Are we gonna like go? I always thought like there was combat involved in this for some reason. I don't even know, but I love this term. It's interesting though. It, um, it actually is from uh, a different kind of culture, but Jesus throws it in that's, that's, that's rolling. Uh, it actually means this. It's interesting. It means that it's the, the world of the dead or death. That's the actual translation for it. And so he says this, and this is great. I love this part. He says, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, or death will not overcome this. So let's push, put this into perspective. Who do you say I am? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Yep, you're a stone for that. You are strong for that. And when you follow that, you're going to be a stone. And guess what? Nothing is going to stop this. Nothing, not even death itself. Because at this time period, there was a lot of people claiming to be the Messiah, the Christ. And they would raise up and they'd get all these followers. And then they'd have a hundred, a thousand people following them. The Jews talk about it in the Bible. And then all of a sudden they would kill their leader. And then guess what? The cult or the group would fizzle out. But Jesus says this, check this out, guys. Death ain't stopping me, baby. Nothing's going to stop me. He says, guess what? The very next passage, he says, I'm going to die. And Peter's like, no, you ain't. And he's like, get behind me saying, I can't kick. Get behind me saying, I'm going to die. But don't worry, because the gates of hell ain't going to stop me, baby. Death ain't holding me down. Yeah. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. Then he says this, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Man, this is super good. The keys of heaven is actually what people think is this. He's referring to when Pentecost happens in Acts 2. So he's saying, guess what? Death ain't stopping this message. Death ain't going to stop me. Trust me. And guess what? I'm going to give you the keys to the heaven. And this is when it's going to come. It's going to come in the future when I'm gone. But here, check this out. 
In Acts chapter 2, Pentecost happens. The Holy Spirit comes down and empowers all the disciples and they start speaking in other languages. They weren't babbling. They weren't, they weren't uh, coming up with like, let's talk story or anything like that. What they were communicating was the simple fact that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God in every single language there so that everyone could hear. Y'all follow me? Yeah. And this is what's interesting is this. Everyone's like, what, they drunk? And Peter steps up and says this. He says, no, man, they ain't drunk. Where am I at? He says, they ain't drunk. He said, check this out, everyone. The Holy Spirit came. Jesus was raised from the dead. He's the Lord. He's the Messiah. Follow him. And this, well, check this out. And he says this. This is a whole chapter. I just summarized it. But he says, check this out. And here are the keys. It says, the doors will be open to all people groups, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well, those who are not Jewish. This was mind-boggling for these Jewish young men because at the time, God was specifically for the Jews. But he's saying, I'm going to give you the keys to heaven and you're going to tell everybody about it. And when Pentecost happens came that is exactly what happened so what's so great about this passage is that it's not just for you or, or you or you or whatever your background is it is for all of us every single one of us the fact that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God and that it ends with uh, these two verses it says I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven uh, okay, it says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be lost in heaven. They, they, I was like, wait a minute, what, what in the world does that mean? So I read like every single commentary. Basically, what the gist of it was, it was like a saying at the time. It was like, um, it was, doesn't make a lot of sense. So it's kind of like, um, like, okay, okay, forgive me, but this is the only thing that came to my mind. But like, when you say like, I gotta go, I go to, uh, should I say that? Yeah, I'll just say it. Friday night, you guys are a little bit more loose. Uh, I got to go take a poop, okay? You don't actually take a poop, right? Like, that's weird, right? So it's like a saying that doesn't make a whole bunch of sense, but it was understanding the cultural experience during this time. And so this is what it actually means. Is that funny? It's kind of funny, right? Uh, it says this, uh, where, where am I at? Oh, yeah. The gist of it was this. You don't have the authority with the keys to determine just to announce guilt or innocence. Meaning, you can tell someone that they're guilty or that they're innocent. You can tell someone that, that what they're doing is right or wrong, but, but I get the final judgment. So I'm going to give you these, these keys. The Holy Spirit's coming. But guess what? I still get the final judgment. And that's what that passage meant. It ends with this, and I got to wrap it up. My time's already out. It says this, then he or, uh, ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. He says, don't tell them. And this makes sense because those who were claiming to be the Messiah at this time, guess what? They were getting killed. There's two people groups that were really running the show around this time. It was the Jews and the Romans. Now, if you said you were a god during the Roman time, was there was only one god. His name was Caesar. And you know what? We'll kill you if you say you're, anybody, if you're Caesar, right? And you ain't. And the second people were the Jews, and they were saying, you know what? Guess what? No, there's only one true God and it's blasphemy. We will kill you if you say that you're God. So he said, you know what? My ministry isn't done. And that's the point. My ministry isn't done. I don't want you guys going out telling people that I am the Christ. I am the Messiah, the son of the living God. Hold on to that. Hold on to that. There will be a time. And there's a big, huge, but whatever, whenever then right here. You see, the thing is that the passage doesn't stop here. When we keep going in scripture, we know that all four gospels end with this. It says, then go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. How Jesus leaves this earth is he's telling us to go. 
Because you know what? He declared when he rode that donkey into the temple, he rode it sideways. When he rode it into the temple, he was declaring that he was the son of God. He was the Christ. And after that, he was crucified. And he said at the end of it, go. It's time for all of you to carry this on. Y'all follow me. And this message of Jesus Christ from the very beginning all the way to now has continued to grow. And the church to this day has never been as big as it has before just because people like you and I have been going and telling people that this simple fact, Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. It's alive. In 2011, Ralph, the plant scientist, he figured it out. He figured out how all these sailing rocks moved around. And he actually took some small pictures that take pictures of plants, and he brought it back to his home, and he said, okay, let me just, let me just process all this. And so he uh, did a simple experiment, and I'm just going to tell you for time's sake what, how it works. Is that he, he, he froze, uh, uh, that's what happens to the rocks. The rock forms ice from the humidity in the air around it that you cannot see with your eyes. It's super small. That ice lifts the rock. The surface, the bedrock that it's on, the playa, is super smooth. When all the weight is on the ice on the sides, the wind comes then and it pushes these rocks across the playa. Now he figured this out with a simple experiment in his kitchen. Interesting. And then it was proven to be later, you know, all these scientists went back and they figured it all out. But yep, that's how these things move. And I think this is a perfect example, you guys got to hear me, of the Christian life today. Hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. Then I'm going to wrap up with this. Check this out. I think that this is a great example of the Christian life. You see, we start with this bedrock, this smooth playa thing. And I think that's Jesus himself. That's Christ, our bedrock, our foundation right there. Then we have the rock. These are people who confess that Jesus is fully God, fully human. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the the son of the living God. These are the rocks here. Then we have the church that comes around the rock and it lifts us up and it makes us be able to move and it supports us and strengthens us. And then guess what? Oh, that wind comes in, that Holy Spirit, and it directs us and moves us in the path that we need to go. That's good, y'all. This is a great example, a great example of the Christian life. You know, Simon's name, it actually starts out with he who hears. But Jesus says, no, 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 not anymore. You're Peter. You are a stone, strong, movable. And I can get the worship band up on the stage, yeah? Someone who relies on his faith, believes that Jesus is fully God. Jesus is his foundation, relies on the church to support him and is guided by the Holy Spirit. And we know this because once the Holy Spirit came into Peter's life, the church explodes and he starts teaching and preaching and talking about Jesus to thousands and thousands of people. And all these people he starts inviting into the church. He says, come on in. And he's loving on them through his words and through his actions. He's meeting with them and and grooming them and love. It's just a great thing. He shares his faith with all these people. And my last question to all of us here is this. Will you be a sailing stone or will you be a sailing Peter, an individual that is moving around, being helped by the church, has their foundation all centered on Christ and is being moved by the Holy Spirit? Do you all follow that? 
Will you be a sailing Peter or a sailing stone? Sharing your faith with the sphere of people that you have around you, supported by the church, your foundation is Christ, being led by the Holy Spirit. That's good stuff. That's what I got from this passage. And that's why we wanna give you guys these invite cards. We wanna help equip you guys being sailing Peters. Those of you in this room that declare Jesus, oh, you are the Christ, you're the son of God. I encourage you to seek out being this rock-like figure like Peter, but also to be a sailing Peter. Let the church come around you and support you and let the Holy Spirit guide you with your foundation being that of Jesus Christ, amen? Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, for giving us scripture that, that is complex and hard to wrestle with, but Lord, thank you so much for allowing us to know that, that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Thank you for confirming that you are fully human and fully God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.